This is an ABC podcast. Hello there and welcome to The Minefield, the show where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. I'm Scott Stevens, and this week we're doing something a little different. Now, long-time listeners to this show will know that Wally Dali and I have developed a particular fondness for an HBO television series called Succession. It's the story of an aging patriarch named Logan Roy, who's raging against both his own mortality and his fading relevance in a world that seems intent on leaving him behind. Logan, who's played unforgettably by the great Brian Cox, who also, incidentally, also played the very first Hannibal Lecter. That's another show for another time. Logan Roy sits atop a broadcast media empire that seems for all the world to resemble something like Fox News in both its politics and its tone, but whose real currency isn't news, but influence, power. And so it's interesting that the other part of the story is the story of the jockeying that takes place between three of Logan's adult children, Kendall, Siobhan, and Roman, to determine who it is who will inherit their father's kingdom, hence the name of the show, Succession. Why should we be interested in a show like this? After all, the world these characters inhabit is opulent, it's decadent, it's frequently obscene, which is to say it's not the world that most of us inhabit. And yet the human drama the show portrays is agonizingly familiar to so many of us. It's all too human. And no wonder. Succession's showrunner, Jesse Armstrong, he's the dark genius behind movies like In the Loop and Four Lions and TV shows like Peep Show and Fresh Meat. Jesse Armstrong draws deeply for inspiration on those most human dramas in all of human literature the plays of William Shakespeare, especially King Lear, Richard III, Julius Caesar, Corleanus, and Hamlet. So it's the quality of writing of this show, the humanity of the drama it portrays, the persistent ethical questions it poses week by week, season by season, what kind of person succeeds in a world of cruelty, callousness, and contempt? What's the benefit of gaining the whole world if it comes at the expense of your own soul These are some of the reasons why we think a show like Succession really matters, why it's bound to endure. And this is why we devoted an episode of The Minefield at the beginning of last year to the first three seasons of Succession. It was, incidentally, the inaugural episode of a series we've come to call The Minefield Not Quite a Book Club. You can go back and listen to those on the Minefield website. We've done Jane Austen's Emma. We've looked at the great 1967 film Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. We've also, just for something completely different, looked at Queen's set list at the 1985 Live Aid concert. But now, the fourth and final season of Succession is soon to come to an end. And in the coming weeks, we want to settle our accounts with this show. Waleed and I want to have a final reckoning with these characters and ask where the fourth season leaves us. But before we do, we thought it would be a good idea to revisit that initial conversation we had about Succession's first three seasons and to remind you and, frankly, both of us, why we think Succession matters and to ask what light this show sheds on the nature of the moral life. Now, I will just warn you, Succession, as most of you will know, is fabulously vulgar. Often it's very, very crass. 
Our conversation isn't, but there are a number of adult themes we haven't quite been able to tiptoe around in the course of discussing the show, so you might want to be aware of that. And now, without further ado, sit back and enjoy our discussion of the first three seasons of Succession. Today, a show that I think I only watched, I mean, who knows, I probably would have got to it eventually, but I, I only watched really on your recommendation. Mm. And I remember watching the first few episodes on a plane and thinking, this is, why have you done this to me, Scott? I, I like mm. none of these people. Is this any good? And I texted you and you said, yes, it is really good. Stick with it. And in the end, I heartily agreed with you. That And also has possibly the best theme music of any television show That's for, true. what, it 20 years? And that show is Succession. Mm. I uh, I don't know really where to begin here because, uh, I mean, there are so many ways you could take a discussion of succession, so many characters that you could pull on and discuss what they are as windows onto perhaps us as much as um, them or the society or the part of society they're trying to describe. So I'm just going to hand it over to you to set the parameters and then I'll I'll follow your trail. Okay, thank you. Um, Well, I mean, one of the reasons for the choice of a show like Succession is it's only three seasons in. I think it's fair to say, Waleed, that none of the things that we're going to be choosing over the course of this year are going to be unmanageable. I think the example you gave a little while ago was War and Peace. Um, We're not going to choose something like, say, I think even The Wire, which is a show I I'm absolutely devoted oh, to. We're not that's doing five. That. I've just well, arranged with Susan seasons. to go and get it all, so I can watch it. For well, this well, you should because you're a better. You'll be a better person as a result of seeing it. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, but it is five big seasons and ten episodes each season, and it does feel to me. I mean, maybe we will, but it does feel to me like a big. I don't think we can do Seinfeld because there's simply too many episodes with too many things running through it. We can't do War and Peace. I'm not sure if we could do Anna Karenina, but maybe we could do something like Howard's End, which is a sort of smaller, more manageable book. So anyway, the fact that it's three seasons long commended it. Um, there is, a, uh, I think, a basic way of sketching out the overarching plot, which as soon as you say it sounds a little bit tedious and predictable. The plot of succession is there is a media magnate or the patriarch of a family named Logan Roy. Uh, In many respects, when people first began watching the first season of Succession, which wasn't, by the way, much of, I mean, it wasn't critically acclaimed, much less viewed all that much, Willie. So I think many people had the same feeling of kind of inertia in those first four episodes in particular. Um, But many people upon reading it thought that it was kind of a satire, maybe a thinly veiled spoof on, say, the inner workings of the Murdoch family. So think conservative right-wing media empire with distinct atavistic tendencies and disproportionate influence on political processes. So that's, that's kind of the basic background. He's the central figure, Logan Roy. And then, of course, he has a whole batch of dysfunctional children who I think it's right to continue to refer to them as children because one of the things that we see as we go through the series is that they never quite stop being anything other than that. That's a theme that I think we're going to re- return to. Uh, So this is all signaled, I think, in the name succession, that you have an aging patriarch who's a relic in many respects, a remnant of another age, when things were maybe not acceptable, maybe not tolerated, but were at least there was a blind eye cast towards them, Uh, sort of unenlightened times or unreconstructed times where in certain forms of misogyny, racism, uh, atavistic appeals to nativism were in the air a bit more. 
But because this patriarch, the magnate of this media empire, is aging, the plot of the show very quickly turns to who will be his heir. And that heir soon emerges to be his uh, firstborn son of his second wife, but his secondborn son overall, Kendall Roy, played by Jeremy Strong. That's the starting point of the series, is that he is already declared as as the heir. Yeah. 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 Uh, He's in a car, whipping through New York, listening to Beastie Boys, getting himself ready for the big pitch, I think, that's going to uh, be the first stamp that he places on the future of the organization. Um, Predictably, the heir, a parent, Kendall, who, he's a child. I mean, would you agree with that, Waleed? He's uncertain of himself. He's lived off his father's cred. He has grown up with a certain sense of entitlement, and yet he's surrounded by both a kind of emotional fragility. You see it very early on, an emotional fragility, but also a series of dysfunctional relationships. The the only relationship that matters to him is his relationship to his father, and everything else is, if you like, mere utility. Which I think is actually true of all the kids, just in different ways, and it sort of comes out. I mean, your description of them as children is apt, but also they would never see themselves that way. So one of the things you notice immediately when you watch it is just the amount of swearing. (laughs) But uh, that's, in a way, a really important dramatic device for it because I think that's the thing that is sort of the false bravado that covers up the fact that they actually are not substantial people very often. So it's almost like Mm, by doing this, they're talking themselves into and trying to convince everybody else that they're really serious because they're so, you know, powerful and crass. So everyone wants to be an alpha, right? And so they express themselves in that way. But you're right about Kendall. I think one of the things about Kendall is, well, actually, does he believe he has the ability or does he not? I'm not entirely sure. I I think they're all deluded enough to believe they have the ability to succeed their father and take over this empire. But they also deep down know that they need daddy's approval and that the only thing that really could really put the stamp on them having that ability would be that their dad agrees with them and yeah. is prepared to hand over the um, the keys to the kingdom, as it were. And, of course, the thread that runs through the whole series, which is I think it's strength but also threatens to be a weakness if it goes on too long or keeps happening in the same way, is the father's constant manipulation of the children because... Um, by dangling carrots in front of them. Oh, you might be the one. You're actually the smartest of the lot. Well, I think if I put you in this position, then that means that you graduate to taking over the big job in a few years, et cetera, et cetera. And each of them gets their turn as having that carrot dangled in front of them. But then it's always withdrawn at crucial moments where the father gets what he wants. There's a very interesting question there, I think, about what exactly Logan wants. Absolutely. Um, does he want the devotion of his kids or not? You know, there's a great line in, is it the third season? And I can't remember who says it now. They describe Logan as the person who kicks a dog in the head because he wants to make sure that dog will come back. It's so funny you raise this, Willie, because this is one of the things I was going to point to shortly. This this is a statement by Caroline Collingwood, who is Logan's ex-wife. It's in the next to last episode in the third season where she's having a meaningful... Oh, well, a meaningful, as meaningful a conversation as she can have with her daughter, who has much the same relationship to her that Kendall does to his father. And uh, Siobhan, who's the daughter, she asks, why is it we never had a dog? 
And Caroline's remark is, Logan never saw anything he loved that he didn't want to kick it just to see if it would still come back. Yeah, yeah. Which is a perfect summary of his relationships generally, but particularly his relationships to his children. It's so interesting. As soon as there is any kind of expression of filial devotion or affection of, or, or, or even something like the only term I can use or the only phrase I can use is, are you proud of me now, dad? Mm-hmm. Did you like that, dad? Yeah. Was that good enough, dad? As soon as there's any, anything that seems to be an expression of almost filial pandering or weakness or the adolescent desire to, uh, to receive parental gratitude or approval, as soon as that happens, he is unrelentingly cruel. Mm. unrelentingly cruel, not just because he finds expressions, I think, of devotion and kindness repulsive or as a sign of weakness. What's, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And then he'll turn that expression of kind of filial devotion into something incredibly crass. What, do you want to give me a blowjob, he asks at a certain yeah. point of his youngest son. Who just so there's something to that, sit next to him in a car. I think. Yeah. yeah. So there is something about that that I think You know, uh, one of my favorite philosophers, Bernard Williams, talks about moral incapacity. There are some people who, as part of their virtue, find it incapable to do certain things. So, for instance, in Shakespeare's King Lear, Cordelia cannot, as a matter of incapacity, she cannot flatter her father, Lear, in the way that he demands or desires. And that's part of her great virtue and integrity as a character. I think you could say almost in a perverse way about Logan, he cannot respond to kindness or adoration or a longing for affirmation. Uh, It may well be his own suffering of trauma. There's one moment in the first series where, uh, the first season, I beg your pardon, where you see uh, scars all down his back from Mm. a history of childhood beating. So it may well be that he simply had the capacity for kindness beaten out of him, but certainly he treats any expression of adoration, anything other than sheer obedience, uh, he treats it with with a kind of contempt and then elicits from him an astonishing form of cruelty. And yet Can he I demands d- it. That's and yet he the, demands that's it. That's, that's, that's right. So the, the dog being kicked in the head, this is, I think, the per- it's the perfect encapsulation because that's what the kids are, right? They've been kicked in the head plenty of times. They come back, they get a pat on the head and a biscuit. They get kicked in the head again. And that process just keeps going. But really the thing you describe reaches its high watermark at the very end of the third season, doesn't it? Where the children put together this move that they think is finally going to unseat their father. And the Mm. fact they unite to do that is actually a significant thing in itself. But they do this and then only discover that Logan's a step ahead of them. And Logan asks that question, what what are you coming with? (laughs) What do you bring? Mm. And... Roman, who is probably the most disgusting character, but also the the funniest, and in mm. perhaps of the children emerges in the third season as the most brilliant, like the one who mm, has these true. flashes of mercurial. Mercurial, yeah. I think, is the right. Yeah, description. but he but he does have profound commercial insight. It's it's not morally engaged insight, but it's it's you know he chooses a presidential candidate in a very powerful way. Um, he has ideas for the future of the company that are powerful. He pulls together deals that and broker's deals even in the second season that he's not expected to be able to do. You know, he, he's the one that does, I think, in the end exhibit the most talent that sort of emerges, even though you think he's hopeless for so long. But anyway, he, Roman responds to this question of what are you bringing with love? Mm. And Logan Roy's response is to laugh at that and yeah, to belittle right. that. To, like, he, he's almost he's disdainful of that as an idea, mm. that this is what 
you would bring. So what inflects the whole thing is a kind of brutal pragmatism. And Logan, I think throughout the whole show, what he's really doing is just scanning everybody for what is useful to him. You see this in the third season where he just, without saying anything, listens to what his ex-wife, who's getting remarried, says about herself and about her husband, what her new husband, what a new or husband-to-be, what a new husband-to-be wants out of life. And then he's able to manipulate that right at the very end to destroy his children's plot against him. I, I wonder if that's... Is that the comment that the makers of the show ultimately are trying to make here? That the people who are successful, who run the great structures of our society, whether it be media empires or political empires or whatever, they succeed not because they are necessarily overly talented or virtuous or embody a set of values. They succeed precisely because they are ruthless and no more. They know how to exercise that ruthlessness. But that's the missing ingredient. Is you know, like Logan says to Kendall, you're not a killer. That's why you mm. can't succeed. And I, the question for me that comes out of this is: Is that actually the ethos of the show, or the comment that the show ultimately wants to make? Okay, this is interesting. I'm so glad you brought this up. It's almost like we planned this, Willie. This is nice. <laughs> um, let, let me just try to say encapsulate this in a couple of points, and before we we get to our guest, I do think, incidentally, you brought up swearing or vulgarity, profanity before. It's not an incidental feature of the show. No. It's essential to the show. And I should say that Jesse Armstrong, who is the creator and the writer of the program, he was previously involved in the BBC comedy The Thick of It, and he was the senior writer of the movie In the Loop. He had an entire staff of people whose only job it was to come up with the most virtuosic combinations of profanity and vulgarity. <laughs> I mean, truly, a whole staff of writers that simply devoted themselves to that. And it's something more than insults. It's also something more than simply forms of rhetorical violence to get one's way. It represents a disdainful look at the world that sees the world as nothing other than mud and filth and resource that is there to be extracted. And that's why one of the other themes that runs through all three seasons, I mean, the show is prodigiously literate, Willie. I mean, I brought up King Lear before on purpose. I mean, Lear is one of the inspirations of the entire show. Children trying to depose their father, their father trying to find a rightful successor to his kingdom. And yet the father at the same time being entirely unimpressed by all of his children and then the children trying effectively to kill their own father. I mean, there's, there's, something, there's something recognizable there. But, you know, there are references here, Willie, to Shakespeare's Coriolanus. There are references to Agatha. I'm not sure if you picked this up at the end of the second season, the fact that a blood sacrifice is being sought on an uber-expensive yacht <laughs> yeah. in the middle of the Mediterranean. That's Agatha Christie's Murder on the Nile. So there are all sorts of kind of wonderful literary references to run that run through the whole thing. And at the same time, all of those references are treated. I mean, there's one moment, for instance, where one of uh, Logan's advisors, Frank, says about a person in a rival company, she could be our Coriolanus, in other words, our internal informant. And he, te he tells him to take his library card and F off. So th there's a kind of, there's a disdain for learning there's a promotion of vulgarity as a lens through which one, one sees the world. There's nothing really, ultimately, of value. There is nothing ultimately really of worth. There is only 
manipulation, there is only resource, including the children. The children are regarded as resources, as yeah. means to be exploited for another end. So I'm glad you said means, because so I think this might be the big moral question that it raises is or, or the moral light it sheds, I guess, is this is how, in the end, how vulgar, depraved, how much moral decay there is. This is how unconscionable things become. Once everyone and everything becomes reduced to a means. Hmm. So the question that I think circles really all the characters is, what, if anything, has inherent meaning to them? And I would say beyond power, probably even more than money, actually. I mean, they have plenty of that. But beyond power and the ascent of others <laughs> to that power, hmm. does anything have value? Logan repeatedly invokes the fact that we're a family, but only when it's convenient. That's right. Only when it's in the furtherance of a particular argument. The each... family is invoked as a form of control. We need to keep this in the family. Yeah. And each character, each child of Logan has moments where they seek to betray their siblings mm -hmm. as, a as a means of winning favour with the father and then as a means of inheriting the empire. The only child who, I guess, has shown the spine really to take the father on is actually Kendall, which is interesting because he seems a spineless character in some ways, but it's him that calls on the vote of no confidence in season one. It's him at the end of season two who... Um, does the big press conference, the bombshell. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, it says, I have documents that show my father is guilty of criminal conduct, etc. And it's him that really in the end is trying to win the other siblings over to launching this takeover. And then finally they come together. Kendall's the only one that really does it. But still at the end of it all, and Kendall's an interesting character in that regard, isn't he? Because he talks about values at the same time as he's so clearly not the embodiment of them, right? That yes, moment but the where... values are a brand. The values exactly. are a veneer. They're a way of ingratiating himself to an adoring public once he's so, lost yes. the trust or the belonging, the place of belonging in his family. So the high watermark of that is when he's walking into that fundraising dinner, I think it was, for journalists. <laughs> F, the, F the patriarchy. Yeah, and he turns around. That, right? I mean, it's just hilarious. And everyone is laughing at him, but he, he can't really see that because he thinks he's now one of the cool kids, right, who who believes in this. Was it someone said, shouldn't you be on a rainbow soapbox right now? Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> it's right. It's Stewie who says that to me. I'm not sure one of the investors. So that's the question I, that's left, isn't can, it? Is that, is can there I anything? pose a different version of, of that question? Okay, sure. Whose world is it? Is it Kendall's or is it Logan's? And when I say whose world is it, I mean, which vision of the world responds to the conduct, to the behavior of Kendall or Logan. So, for instance, one of the, the narrative arc that we have across the three seasons is Logan Roy goes from obsolescence. He is sitting atop a crumbling empire over which he once held absolute sway to convalescence. He has a severe turn, which leaves him utterly incapacitated. That then provides the context within which the children can move against him. It's only when he's on death's door that they can begin their move. And then that moves across the second and third season to a condition, I'm not sure if you'd agree with this, Waleed, but of hyperpotency. It's not just that he's elderly 
and a dinosaur, as Shiv once refers to him. Towards the end of season two, he's a dinosaur that's disappearing from the earth. No, he knows something about the world. This is what he says in the second to last episode of the third season. Kendall, who's trying to be a great moral figure, he says he was trying to be a knight on horseback. And Logan says, life's not knights on horseback. It's a fight for a knife in the yep. mud. Yep. He says in another point in that same conversation, I know things about the world. If I didn't, I wouldn't be able to turn a buck. Yeah, I love that line. So at every point over the three seasons, Logan is described as a dinosaur, someone who doesn't understand the world. He thinks gobbling up local TV stations. He thinks throwing red meat to a nativist, atavistic, racist, right-wing audience of, you know, proud boys and, uh, and closet clan members uh, is going to sort of win him back political favor or political power. There's, remember, there's another point where uh, he says to Siobhan, this is in the uh, Future Freedom Summit episode, FFS, <laughs> yeah. by the way, yeah, which yeah. is one of the most wonderful in-house jokes. Um, you know, people told me I couldn't survive the cruise scandal. People told me the climate demanded that I resign, that I step down. But maybe I'm a climate denier. Yeah. In other words, I know the world and all of you with your superficial morals, with your expressions of cosmopolitan ambition and techno-utopian dreams. You think you understand the world. You think the future will bend to your will. You think you know what it takes to turn a buck, to be successful. But ultimately, yes, he's a dinosaur, but he's a dinosaur that still roams the earth. The world still responds to him. He knows something about the world that all of these expressions of literariness and moral literacy and professions of equality and, and cosmopolitan ambition, and, yeah. urbane civility, yeah. all of those things, that's just playing around on the surface. And that's why, Waleed, and I'll just say this one last thing, Referring to the Logan, sorry, to the Roy children as children is vital because at various points throughout the series. So, for instance, at the end of season two, they're on this luxury yacht. But what are they doing? They're going down a water slide. Mm. At the beginning of the third season, all the children are gathering together to discuss their plan, their plot for what the company can become. Where are they doing it? In a children's bedroom. At the beginning and, of the sorry, very last. And what, what do they get sent? Yes. Donuts. <laughs> donuts. We're going to talk about donuts later. By Logan. Donuts. Yeah. And then what uh, Roman says, I'm 98% positive they're not poisoned. Yes. It's <laughs> another wonderful. Uh, and then the last episode of the third season, while Logan really is affecting change to put his company on footing that he wants, what are the children doing? They're playing Monopoly. Yeah. There's this idea that he knows how the world works. And everyone else is playing around. Everyone else is playing games. And the fundamental delusion of the children is that they think they have just enough entitlement, just enough wealth, just enough standing behind them that they know how things work and they can take over when mm. the moment comes. Whereas what the final episode of the final series reveals is he knows the world. Logan knows the world. Yes, he's a dinosaur, but he's a dinosaur that still reigns supreme. Yes, and his success is the evidence of his knowledge. That's his epistemic claim, isn't it? That's right. If I That's weren't right. right, this wouldn't be what's happening, and this is what's yeah. happening. We, of course, don't know how it ends. So once this is all over, maybe we discover it really isn't Logan's world, and there just needed to be a different key to unlock it. 
Our guest is Lisa Bode. She's senior lecturer in film and television studies at the University of Queensland, but she's not just an academic for our purposes or a television or movie critic. You're, you're just an attentive viewer like we are. Is that right, Lisa? Yes. When it comes to succession, I think it's um, definitely a show that rewards close attention. The closer your attention to it, the more enjoyment you can get out of it. Mm. So not kind of thinking about I was watching it the other day with a friend of mine and they were watching it for the first time and they're going, who am I supposed to like here? Is this person meant to be likable? And I was like, you're missing the point. That's, mm, right. It's not about, you know, who is likable and who we're supposed to hate or like or whatever. It's yeah. so much more than that. <laughs> well, except, sorry, can I just interject there? Yeah, it, please. It sort sure. of is though, isn't it, Lisa? Because I find as a viewer... I'm constantly interrogating myself. It's like, why do I want this person to win this skirmish now? Yes, what does that mean yes. for me? And I suppose that's it's kind of inherent in what Scott was saying before. And I suppose what I was saying about, you know, what is inherently valuable in this world that the show creates. And that is, it's, an, it's such an amoral world that it sucks you into having these amoral responses, right? And is that potentially one of the show's great achievements? is that interrogates your own amorality? I think that's a really good question. Um, yeah, because I think, you know, when you're watching it, everyone's sort of like going, who is going to succeed here? And like, um, and admiring the sort of the strategy and the play of the different characters against each other to try and get one up. And there's a lot of pleasure in um, sort of watching characters like Greg, for example, rise, cousin Greg. But at the same time, we're watching his corruption as we're watching yes. his rise. I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's such an important <laughs> I think Cousin Greg is a very interesting character as well as Tom Wamsgans, um, both of them as the characters that we kind of see them from the beginning. And so rather than the, the actual children, Kendall, Shiv and Roman, who've grown up in this family and who've been shaped and um, abused so much by this father and their ideas about what love is and what sort of loyalty and everything have been completely twisted by him, um, that they can't be sort of anything other than what they are, no matter how they try. But we see these kind of more, I know, innocent sort of characters, except they're not really that innocent, are they? I mean, Greg, his first kind of, when we first see him, he's just sort of lying to his mother about why he's failed to succeed at the theme park that he's supposed to be working at, you know, blaming someone else already. With the yeah. difficult job of being a mascot. <laughs> and yes, that's right, doddering yes, yes, at this very yes, but, sad theme park. <laughs> but being a, which is, I mean, it's the most miserable looking theme park I think I've ever seen, and I've seen some horrible ones. It but is. <laughs> the, the, the image of, of being one of the suited up mascots while stoned, and then vomiting through the eye sockets is one of the most is one of the most un unforgettable. Look, um, Lisa, I'm really glad you brought up Tom Wamsgans. We didn't discuss him before, mm -hmm. and I was actually I was thinking about sort of beginning with Kendall because in many respects, Kendall is the most pathos laden yes. character. I mean, he's loathsome in so many ways, even when he makes his great quote unquote moral turn at the end of season two and then throughout season three. It's not moral at all. It's it's branding. And yes. when pushed, he falls back on forms of behavior 
that are at best exploitative and domineering and chauvinist and at worst are purely or merely utilitarian. And yet he's such an affecting figure. Your heart kind of goes out to him. Tom Wamsgans, mm. however, I mean, in, in many respects, he reminds me of a character out of Gatsby. You know, he is, <laughs> yes. he is Midwest who marries into an incredibly powerful family. He thinks that one of the perks of being a member of this family is being able to treat other people like pieces of crap. There's that unforgettable moment in season two where uh, one of his staffers loses a bet with him and has to be human furniture for him for the rest of the day. Oh, God, yes. He takes this delight in urinating all over people beneath him. And his treatment of Greg is probably the most persistent thing. Is appalling. Yeah. And, And yet one of the striking things when one arrives at the end of season three is he is the successor. He has done what... None of the children were capable of doing. He betrayed the others for this, for Logan's own sake. He offered himself up as someone who was willing to go to prison and receives the only form of gratitude, or the only expression of gratitude that Logan expresses throughout the three seasons. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Um, <laughs> but also, but uh, note how he does it, right? He, he does it by giving up on the thing that has defined... Yes. His moral character really through the whole thing. He's the only character who seems to love anybody. And he had this devotion, and I don't think it's merely cynical or pragmatic. He has this devotion to Ship. He loves her, and he's desperate for her to love him. And it's very clear to us, I think, all the way through that she doesn't really. Yes. And in the end, that becomes more and more explicit. And there's a point, and we could probably have an endless argument about exactly when that moment is, that he changes his mind and says, you know what, I'm now out for me and I'm prepared to stab Shiv in the back if I have to. But in doing so, he has to shed the cocoon that he was in, which is this marriage that he has to Shiv. And this, so he, he has to basically decide either I don't love her anymore or my love for her is now subordinate to my own interests and my, my own positioning. That's, that's probably the most profound moral or character transformation of anyone in the show. What's interesting is everybody else kind of ends up circling in a stagnant way, right? They just go round and round the various expressions of themselves, but they don't in the end move anywhere. They're kind of like Seinfeldian in that way. Nobody grows. (laughs) But Tom kind of, well, whether you call it growth growth or shrinking, he's certainly become more ruthless and more self-interested. So it's almost like the whole situation he's in has this gravitational pull on his character that even those who have something other, even if it's only a little bit, something other than mere self-interest guiding them, in the end have to shed that if they're going to survive in this environment. Yeah, I think we can say a lot about Tom. Like I'd I'd say, if you'll excuse the phrase, he spends the show learning Logan's love language. That's not a a nice sort of term. I don't like that term. But if we think about the first time that we meet Tom in, in episode one, where they're outside the jewellery shop and he's with Shiv and it's Logan's birthday and Tom's like, what can I give him? What will be meaningful to him? You know, what can I give him that will show, you know, I respect you and I like you, but I need you to sort of love me and all this sort of stuff. And, and Shiv says, Everything you give him will be an equal amount of nothing. So make it look like ten or fifteen thousands worth, and we're good. And so he gets him this Patek Philippe watch, and like shows to him like the brand and everything, and and then just notes just how dismissive Logan is of that. The greatest gift that he discovers he can give him is his willingness to sacrifice himself. 
Yes. His willingness to take him to the bathroom, his loyalty and his obedience, and those are the things that Logan will value. But we all know how that ends, right? Because Logan has to kick him in the head. (laughs) Yes, and he comes back just like the dog. <laughs> now, 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 one of the one of the many things. I mean, look, let's not sugarcoat this. Tom Wamsgans is an unforgettably loathsome character. Yes, um, I don't know that it's I, that simple. I, I mean, for all of the cruelty of Shiv's treatment of him, I don't want to go into certain things that he says in season three, which may you may well say that the conditions for him being able to say certain things, especially about her being on birth control are cultivated by her treatment of him. But at the same time, there is a cruelty that he displays. You could even say that his only true loves in that third season are Greg and Logan, um, his possessiveness, <laughs> I'm for instance. I'm not sure about that. Can I just say, however, and please do disagree, Willie. Sure. One of the great things about Tom is that he is given the greatest lines of yes. the entire three seasons. So, for instance, when he says, when he helps Logan to the bathroom, do you need me to hold the scepter? What a line. Is, <laughs> is astonishing. When he, when he asks, and I, I bring this up for a very specific reason, and I want to sort of throw this back to the two of you. When he says to Siobhan at the beginning of season two, when they've just moved into their new palatial apartment, and he says, I just want a picture of us against this bare wall. What do you think, Shiv? Would that be too Assadi <laughs> to <laughs> Saddam? <laughs> which, which, is, which, which is an astonishing thing to say. But one of the things that we see through Tom's eyes through all three seasons are what I, and you, I think you disagree with this language, Willie, but I'm going to use it anyway, are these sites of lawlessness that run through the show. So in the first season, and all of them incidentally seem to be associated with Eastern Europe for reasons that I don't want to go into. But his bachelor party is at this dingy libertine club where anything goes as long as the other person is into it, nicknamed Prague. In the second season, for a senior staff field trip, they go to Eastern Europe in order to indiscriminately shoot stuff. Uh, The beginning of season three, after Logan is exposed to all manner of legal trouble, where do they go? They fly to the Balkans where there's a non-extradition Treaty. In other there's words, there's also the Azerbaijan connection. There's the Azerbaijan connection where all manner of, of yeah. shady deals and influences can be secured. Um, but, but I think one of my favorite locations of lawlessness, if you'll permit me, is the Future Freedom Summit in North Carolina. You could also say that this is a somewhat Eastern European like <laughs> place. But Tom has this wonderful line to Greg where he says, no, 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 this isn't a place full of fascists and Nazis. It's a safe place where you don't have to pretend that you like Hamilton. <laughs> um, so and Greg says, so, I like Hamilton. Uh, sure, sure, you sure, sure, we all do. So there are all of these places where only certain people have access, where accountability doesn't work, where law doesn't operate where there's something base and fundamental and raw and atavistic that tends to rule. And what's interesting is that we we see almost all of those places through Tom's eyes. And it's the exposure to these places that almost leads him, I think, to that condition of eventual, eventually leaving Midwestern nice behind and engaging in various forms of overt cynical lawlessness himself. What, what do you think, Lisa? Yeah, I'm just trying to think, 
because of course I've just sort of rewatched the first season and everything, but uh, I'm just thinking about, you know, where he starts and where he ends up and how he gets there. That's always the sort of the question. What are those sort of turning points? And I think where his sort of moral, his lines in the sand seem to be sort of earlier on and how they sort of are calibrated through his interactions in this world and his um, encounters in these moments of, of lawlessness. Like, I suppose we get a sense that he's grown up in the Midwest and that he's kind of been an outsider watching this world, like reading Vanity Fair magazines and, and mm. things like this, his mother's Vanity Fair magazines and sort of imagining what it would be like to be part of this world. And he can't believe his luck that he's managed to get Shiv, who he genuinely loves. And he imagines, I suppose, some kind of glamorous life wearing sort of designer clothes in this designer apartment and um, being with her, this sort of power couple and everything. And, and then, see, yeah. Could you even say, could you even say that just to the degree that Tom is an outsider who's looking longingly at, my God, look at the lives that these people are able to live. In many respects, he is the internal reflection of the audience. Yeah, his um, he has that sort of desire for opulence and sensuality. He's the one who places the greatest value on those things. Like his, like for example, when Greg gets his first paycheck, and Greg's like, "Oh, I'm going to go to California Pizza Kitchen," <laughs> and so he's like, "You don't know how to be rich," and takes him out to that restaurant where they eat those. Uh, those the birds. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And it's disgusting, but because it's so expensive, it's yeah. like, you know, having to sort of eat it with the sheet over their head and everything so you can't see how disgusting it is. And but see, drinking this, is the why then, this, this is why then, when you reach the moment, when you reach the, oh, yes, yes. Uh, when we reach the moment in season three where Kendall is trying to entreat to Tom, come over with me. This is in the same episode the diner, as the yeah. Future Freedom Summit. Yeah, they meet at the diner, which, again, the description of the omelette is, is unforgettable. I won't repeat it. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> where, where Kendall is begging him, you know, come over. You can show Shiv who the man is. You can, you can distinguish yourself as your own person. Come over with me and we can take the whole thing down ourselves. You know, for, for the previous three seasons, viewers have been looking at Kendall with a degree of horror and sympathy, and I think secretly wanting him to win. There's just something, mm. you can do it, pal. You, you can do it this time. You don't have to fail this time. And Tom's response, and this is where I think he has fully gone over to Logan, where he says, here's the thing, Kendall. I think you're going to get effed. Mm. Because you always get effed. And I've not seen Logan get effed once. And then he says, mm -hmm. and then he says, your family, you know where they are right now? They're in a hotel choosing the next president. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a decisive scene, isn't it? Yeah. It is. That is a really important scene. Yeah. Um, but I think that is also the moment of seduction for viewers, where viewers are left with the same for all of Logan's seeming obsolescence, his irrelevance. Where is he? He is determining the way that the yeah. world works. Being relevant. This just goes to your point about whose world is it? Well, it is... It is Logan's, or at least he's the best at playing in that world. Scott, can I pick up the lawlessness aspect of this? Lisa, I'm interested Please. in your thoughts. As Scott was saying that, Lisa, I was thinking, well, there is kind of a cultural relativism of sorts that runs through this because the Eastern European invocations there, 
the idea of lawlessness sets up this world where I think for the Roy family, rules are merely facts of the terrain of life to be navigated. They don't have inherent value. They don't express a kind of inherent worth. They're just part of the obstacle course, right? And you, if you can smash your way through those obstacles, then do it. And if you can't, because the FBI is going to turn up, you know, or whatever it is, and Logan's just told them to F off so many times and eventually he's told, sorry, these are the ones that don't F off, right? <laughs> but it gives you the sense of his <laughs> attitude, right? That's like, no, I, I have no inherent respect for these institutions or the rules. I'm, I'm sort of left with this idea that we all believe, don't we, that if Logan was Assad or Saddam, he would behave exactly that way, right? There's, there, mm. there is no, you know, these sort of paragons of American capitalism and the sort of the liberalism that undergirds them. In moral terms, aren't we being urged to accept that they are no different to the dictators of the world or anyone else who just wants to wield power in a completely unaccountable way? And now I don't know if you would go so far as to say the show is making that comment on America, generally, or not. Maybe we can get into that. But I don't know. What, did, what do you make of this sort of cultural relativism that seems to... Do you remember, by the way, Waleed, that when Logan calls Shiv, the face that comes up on her phone is Saddam? It's Saddam Hussein, yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Logan is very, very much so. He, he is, as Sir Kendall calls him, a beast, this kind of, definitely this sort of monster. Um the way in which you treat kind of the people below you, the way in which you think about your viewers, the way in which he kind of models his company in his own image and just kind of seeing the staff that work beneath him, despite the sort of the language that even goes through the corporate training videos of, you know, the Waystar Royco family and all this sort of stuff, calling the corporation itself a family. But we see that in the sort of backstage kind of area, like the documents about the people who have um, suffered in this corporation, that they're called, you know, no real person, not real mm. people. They're yeah. not seen as people. They're seen as expendable resources in the same way that the children are sort of seen as well. Um, that the sort of contrast between the window dressing and and the reality I find that sort of very interesting in it that mm. I wondered sort of watching it, like who was responsible for sort of bringing in that sort of window dressing? Is that something that Logan would have signed off on that? Or is that something that Kendall has brought in his years in in the company, in, insisting that they have this at least veneer of complying with diversity and um, yeah. and this kind of family and future orientated thing? Or is it just it's, a cunning read of the play? Yeah, this, that's right. This is what it was. The narrative. Well, see, this is this is interesting because it seems to me that the universe that Succession inhabits is a universe in which belief never goes all the way down. Even the mm. Future Freedom Summit, they choose a candidate, a presidential candidate named Gerald Mencken, who the fact that he shares the same last name as the great anti-Democrat, the great social <laughs> provocateur, H.L. Mencken, is, is astonishing to me. But what, what does he do? He quotes Hitler and Plato and Aquinas in equal measure. Because mm. he's happy but, to take from any of them. Yeah. Yes, yes. But the thing that commends him is what? As Roman puts it, he's box office. Yep. In other words, it's easier to deal with a fascist in some ways. It's harder to deal with somebody who is seductive and knows how to appeal. 
And I think this is what's, for me, the fascinating contrast is between these sites of lawlessness, so the Future Freedom Summit, Eastern Europe, and these places of hyper-moral respectability. So you've got Argestes, this place in the in the Colorado Rockies where the rich and powerful of the world gather in order to swoon and to display their moral credentials. Mm-hmm. You think about the place, uh, uh, Turnhaven, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the compound, the, the traditional, yes. the traditional <laughs> home of the Pierce family, who are the, who are the Greeks to the Roy's Romans. And, and yet what's <laughs> fascinating about all of them, none of them have belief that goes all the way down. So even Nan Pierce, for all of her principle, for all of her citation of, of Emerson and Thoreau and Dickinson, for all of her invocation of America's great past, she too has a number. She too is willing to, to swallow whatever moral convictions she says she has and sell her media Until company. she doesn't. But yeah. Until she doesn't, but yeah. that's because of a PR disaster. Yeah, something that happens. Yes. Can, I, can I make one point on that? I think what you've articulated there is what is so brilliantly expressed in the theme music. So the theme music is this rich, opulent, high-minded classic, invocation of classical music but with a hip-hop beat under it, which was inspired directly by the very first scene in the show of Kendall in the back listening to the Beastie Boys, psyching himself up at a meeting. But because of that, it's dirty. Like the the whole, there's this sense of, and I've, I've listened to the composer talking about this. this, this was, if you ask the Roys what music describes them, it would be this sort of classical thing. Wow. But at the same time, that's what they are. That, that hip-hop stuff that, that is underneath it that sort of sullies it. I mean, I don't mean sullies it in a... I don't mean to place a value judgment on hip-hop when I do that, but the the timbre of hip-hop is just so at odds, right? That That's the meeting point there. And so you get this kind of broken decadence. That's that's what the theme music sounds like, and I think that's very deliberate. Can I... I think that... Sorry, can I just say something about that? I mean... I haven't obviously I haven't read like what the composer has said about it, but my impression when I hear that theme music is more about the sort of the hip hop sort of stuff is kind of what Kendall wants to be and what he sees as yeah. the future, that sort of future orientated kind of thing. And it's this sort of war also all the way through between different kind of models of the media. Um, yes. The true. sort of the contemporary online digital distribution platforms versus the sort of old media and the, the sort of old money. So it's, mm. I think that it's working on several levels there. So you could sort of talk about it as this kind of the street, the dirty, the brutality beneath the sort of pomp of mm. the, the music. Like it's, it's so many times when we see, like they're playing sort of music that's very sort of redolent of Handel's Messiah and things like that, you know. Yeah. Um, but then those sort of moments where Kendall sort of comes out and does his hip hop thing and, and <laughs> says, yo. Yes. <laughs> just like, oh, How God. amazing <laughs> is that hip hop song he does these days? <laughs> I mean, just. It's so... almost, almost as good as, as doing a karaoke of Billy Joel's, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Hands up, so hands many... up who wanted to see him perform that while hanging from a cross. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I was disappointed that it didn't happen, but uh, also not surprised. No, I was so relieved <laughs> they didn't do that. I think because I'm a very big Billy Joel fan and I just didn't need that to be <laughs> selling my experience. Um, we, we could keep going forever. I had a question in my mind that I wanted to ask, which is ultimately, is this a nihilistic show? Um, and so, Lisa, I'm going to ask one word answer on that because we don't have time for any more. And Scott, you're not allowed to talk on it. 
because that would be another show. <laughs> I'll just say we'll have to see season four to really know <laughs> That's sure, the perfect answer. It's, it's still open. <laughs> it is still open, and I did make that point before about the ending could determine, I mean, cast everything in a different light, doesn't it? Lisa, thank yes. you so much. This has been great fun. Uh, we've enjoyed it. Thank we'll find out in time me. whether or not the audience did. Separate question, I suspect. <laughs> uh, Lisa Bode is Senior Lecturer in Film and Television Studies at the University of Queensland. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, the inaugural Minefield Club for Books and Other Non-Book Cultural Artefacts and the Discussion Thereof, which is now at an end. We'll see you next week. So, is succession nihilistic? Does nothing really matter? Well, he didn't give me a chance to answer then. I'm not going to have a chance to answer now. But we will be answering that question, as Lisa Bode foretold, in our upcoming show on Season 4 of Succession. You'll be able to hear it on the 8th of June on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. It'll also be broadcast on RN on Sunday, the 11th of June. But for now, that's all from us. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.